Prestige listeners, it's Derek with you as uh, well usual, I guess. I, I, I miss occasionally, but uh, Danny doesn't doesn't ding me for that on my performance reviews, so that's good. <laughs> uh, I'm joined as always by my uh, co-host Danny Bessner, uh, and we are here to continue our series on the Israel-Palestine crisis or conflict, however you want to put it. Uh, we're once again privileged to be joined by Rashid Khalidi, Edward Said, Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. His book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017, has been informing this series, uh, and it is available for purchase. And you should all, if you haven't done that, you know, what are you doing? Go, go, go buy the book. Uh, Professor Khalidi, thank you again so much for coming on the program. Thanks again for having me. So last time, and I would encourage people to go check out the, the previous, your previous appearances if they haven't done that, but the last time uh, you were on the program, we left off with uh, sort of 1947. We're on the verge of partition. The British government has, for a number of reasons, kind of washed its hands of mandatory Palestine. Basically, it had become more trouble than it was worth. Britain was pulling out of India, and there, as you said last time, there wasn't really much point to maintaining uh, an empire on the road to India if there was no Indian colony to protect. At the same time, relations between the Jewish colonists and the British mandatory authorities had broken down, and so uh, they were getting resistance from both Jewish and Arab groups. Uh, and basically, you know, this, this became, as I said, more trouble than it was worth. Uh, it was at this point in 1947 that uh, the British government, Clement Attlee's government, you you characterize it as dump the problem of Palestine into the lap of the new United Nations. Uh, and I think I want to start there with uh, a little bit of background on the UN Special Commission on Palestine, uh, the work that it did, and the extent to which uh, there were there were some there were a lot of international geopolitics involved uh, in what happened here. I think the discourse in the U.S. about the partition is it sort of emerged from on high and it's sacrosanct, but uh, there was a lot of wrangling and, and kind of petty politics that, that went into play here. So can, can you give people a, a little sense of what went on with the, the commission? Sure. I think I would start by saying that people have a, a, an entirely false understanding of what the United Nations is. The United Nations was a club created by the victors to preserve their power. Yep. <laughs> and so the, the, uh, the weight and decision-making capabilities of the United Nations were essentially reserved to those great powers, which is, say, the United States, Britain, Soviet Union, and to a much lesser extent, France and China, which at that stage was, was nationalist China under Chiang Kai-shek. Um, but the real power brokers were the Americans, the British, and the Russians. And so the outcome of both the UNSCOP, United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, and of the General Assembly resolution that emerged after UNSCOP had reported, majority report and a minority report, was essentially determined by these power dynamics. To think that the commission, you know, did some kind of independent work and decided on high, just in some kind of completely principled manner, uh, entirely free of power politics is nonsense. Um, it was an outcome very largely determined by the fact that the Americans and the Soviets had the votes, had weight within both the Security Council, which they controlled through their veto power, but also in the General Assembly, where they had they were able to mobilize blocks of votes in support. Nevertheless, UNSCOP did what these commissions do. It went out, it, 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 it held hearings, it, it listened to people. New developments in Palestine follow the arrival of the special committee appointed by the United Nations to investigate present conditions. Um, and it was very clear to those who have studied it that the majority of the commission was made up of people who were entirely favorable to Zionism and were unsympathetic to the claims of the Arab majority that they should have had and should have self-determination as the majority in Palestine. Um, in the end, 
uh, there were two reports, a majority report, which reflected that sympathy to Zionism, reflected the post-World War II guilt, very much merited for the failure of anybody to lift a finger to save those uh, people who are about to be murdered by the Nazis, Jews who uh, could have and should have been saved before World War II. And those factors, as well as I said, of power politics, which is to say the Americans and the Soviets had decided they wanted a Jewish state in Palestine. That, that, that was clear for both. And that was the outcome that UNSCOP came up with in terms of the majority report. It called for the creation of a Jewish state in more than 55% of Palestine, in a majority Arab country, mind you, with most of the good land, uh, including all of the land and almost all the territory inhabited by Jews in Palestine, part of that Jewish state, an Arab state in under 45% of Palestine, and a so-called corpus separatum, a separate body under international control that was to have been established uh, around Jerusalem. This was a, a, a recommendation by the majority in the majority report, which went against the Charter of the United Nations, which called for self-determination, which went against, in fact, for that matter, the covenant of the League of Nations, which had established the British mandate over Palestine, which again uh, called for self-determination of these mandated territories. Self-determination would have meant that the majority population would have become the majority in a state of Palestine. This was completely unacceptable to the Zionist movement, and it was unacceptable to the Americans and the Soviets. And so the majority report, which called for this quite remarkable carving up of Palestine into actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven separate pieces, uh, if you count Jaffa, eight separate pieces in a very small country, an utterly unrealistic uh, uh, projection given that you had two peoples the, 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 the Jewish community, which had already developed its peoplehood, if you want, um, uh, and, and the Arab majority, uh, which was also a people, to have been placed into these eight different bits and pieces in a situation where conflict had been raging in Palestine since the mid-1930s. It was a recipe for catastrophe. It was a recipe for war. It was a recipe for victory of the stronger, which was to say the issue of the Jewish community organized and, and, and mobilized by the Zionist movement uh, and armed and trained by the British starting in the 1930s. Uh, so you had a powerful centralized military apparatus, which the British had helped to arm and train in helping the British to put down the Arab revolt of the late 30s uh, as against the relatively disorganized militias uh, that the Arab majority uh, could field. It was, a, it was a recipe for a victory of, 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 of what was to become Israel uh, over the Palestinians. Um, and it included no enforcement mechanisms. It included no uh, mechanisms for peacekeeping, no mechanisms for keeping the communities apart, no mechanisms for resolving a civil war, which began the moment the resolution was adopted by a majority of the General Assembly on November 29th of 1947. And that takes us to that vote which was a vote that was achieved, a majority vote that was achieved, essentially by arm-twisting and bullying. The tense vote on this way of settling immemorial strife between Jews and Arabs of the Holy Land is preceded by bitter debate. But for once, Russia's Andrei Gromyko sides with the United States. The United States bribed and, and bullied its, its countries like the Philippines, countries that it had influence over. The Soviets did the same uh, with the satellites of Eastern Europe. And you had a, a manufactured... Uh, majority uh, in the General Assembly for a resolution which, frankly, was utterly unrealistic. Uh, it, it was no possibility of an Arab state emerging, given the superiority of the Jewish community and given the determination of the Zionist movement to take over the entirety of Palestine. They were happy to accept the partition resolution and give them a lot that they didn't already have, but they, they hoped and expected that they would be able to take more. And as the fighting developed in Palestine, they did take more city after city, town after town, village after village fell um, in fighting that starts right after the partition in November 1947. Before we get to that, I just have a geopolitical question because mm -hmm. I want to just zoom out for a second because um, the, the UNSCOP um, report is released in late August 1947, and this is a very important geopolitical moment. The buy zone between the British and the Americans is created in January 1947, which is really, I think, 
one of the first and most important steps on the way to the Cold War. Um, you have uh, on August 1st, 1947, I believe the French zone joins the buy zone. So you basically have the, 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 the Effectively, some some uh, talking about another partition, uh, the the partition of East and West Germany into what right. they'll become. And in March 1947, you have the Truman Doctrine speech, where he essentially globalizes the Soviet the the the, the nascent Soviet U.S. conflict by saying that the U.S. will support anti-communist movements. So, could you maybe? Uh, I'd just love to hear about why are they cooperating on this? Right. And is there a vision of what Israel? Palestine will be in this emergent Cold War. Personally, I don't think the Cold War gets going until autumn 1949 with the quote-unquote fall of China and the Soviet acquisition of atomic weapons. I think that's the final, you know, the, the point of no return. But this is a very fluid moment. Could, so could you place it in that larger sure. early Cold War moment? Sure. I, I, I'd like to talk about that, and I'd like to talk about briefly the minority which is another interesting aspect of this, because the majority report, which was adopted by the General Assembly, I've just talked about. Um, it basically handed most of the country over to the minority. The majority report, the minority report, argued something quite different, which is that this was an un, this was an unfair and a unjust uh, violation uh, of the Charter of the United Nations to give a minority control over most of the country that had you know, a right to self determination, um, mm -hmm. and this happens. Because of both pre and pre Cold War dynamics globally, um, as well as the nascent Cold War competition between the two, what become the two superpowers, uh, each had its own motivations for supporting the majority report, for supporting a report that would have led, they understood this, to the establishment of the Jewish state in most or all of Palestine. The Americans' motivations were the following. Uh, and they were the, it's, it's remarkable because the Soviets and the Americans are operating on parallel and completely different tracks, all the while operating as rivals and in a nascent conflict with one another. This is a time when in Turkey and in Iran, the Cold War is beginning to develop over issues where the Americans and the Soviets are on opposite sides. There is a, in Kurdistan, in Iranian Kurdistan, and in uh, Iranian Azerbaijan, there were sort of little Soviet puppet regimes, which the Americans helped the Iranians to crush in 46. There were Soviet claims on Turkey made in 1945-46. The Soviets are furious at the Turks for having remained neutral for so long during World War II. And so they start bullying the Turks. And the United States steps in in both cases, uh, together with Britain. And it could be argued that you may be right, the Cold War overall doesn't start until 1949. But in the Middle East, it's begun even earlier. Uh, these two countries see themselves as rivals. You have strategic American considerations, a basing of long-range bombers in Middle Eastern bases. You have the, the beginning of the containment doctrine, the idea of creating regional pacts against the Soviet Union um, developing in the Middle East in this period. So it's a period of, 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 of growing rivalry between the superpowers. And it's, it's hard in light of that to explain how do the both of them uh, in 1947 end up on the same page <laughs> right. over Palestine. And so I think you have to see them as operating on parallel tracks. The Americans uh, have a variety of considerations. Uh, one of them is a rivalry nobody talks about very much, which is the American-British rivalry. The United States is trying to turf the colonial powers out of all of their possessions all over the globe to create a new world order in which the United States is a hegemon and, which, and in which colonial empires are laid to rest and the colonial powers are removed from Southeast Asia, from South Asia, from the Middle East, and later on from Africa. Um, and the Middle East is a prime arena. Uh, there's competition in Iran, there's competition in Palestine, there's competition in Egypt. It's very low key. It gets much less attention than the Cold War rivalries between the US and the Soviet Union. But like Franco-British rivalries, which continue from before World War I right through the post-World War II period, American-British rivalries are an important uh, explanation for this. And the British have puppet monarchies in Iraq, in Jordan, and in Egypt. They arm, they're the ones who supply arms to these armies. It's a very lucrative business, by the way. Um, they're the ones uh, which have preferential trade agreements. These countries are linked to sterling. The British are dependent on their colonial, former colonial empire to a very great extent uh, for foreign exchange and so on and so forth. So for Britain, maintenance of the status quo in the Middle East is very important. 
And from the late 1930s, from the, uh, uh, just the eve of World War II, the British lean much more heavily on these Middle Eastern, Arab, especially Arab, but generally Middle Eastern, I should say, bases of theirs. And by that, I don't mean military bases. I mean, they see Iran, Egypt, Iraq, and so forth as, as strong points for British power and British, and British economic and, and, and military and other uh, engagement. And the United States is trying to undo this. Uh, it supports the Egyptians in trying to get the British out of bases in Egypt. Uh, it supports the Iranians up to a point in the oil dispute. And then later on with the Republican administration in 52, it backs the British and they carry out the coup and so on and so forth in Iran in, in 1953. Um, in Palestine, this works itself out in the Americans seeing uh, the nascent Israeli state or seeing this, this Zionist project that's developing into a state or embryonic state um, as something that can help the United States against the British. Because the, 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 from, from the time of the 1939 white paper, when the British abandoned most, many at least, of their commitments to Zionism, um, there's a conflict between uh, the Zionist movement and the British. And the Americans, you know, for the United States, this is good. It's also good for the Soviets. Uh, Stalin has been, since he was a young man, obsessed with British power. During the, the, the Russian Civil War, the British were the animators of the white armies that were fighting the Reds and, and which only are defeated after years and years of struggle. And so for, for uh, Stalin, British power in the Middle East is a direct threat to Soviet power and the whole southern tier of the Soviet Union. And as far as he's concerned, getting the Brits out of the Middle East is a primary objective. And to him, this Zionist project, which is in conflict with the British at this time, 45, 46, 47, is an ideal vehicle, both against the British and against what he rightly, I think, sees as British puppet, puppet regimes, whether in Iraq, whether in Iran, whether in Jordan, whether in Egypt. And so each for their own reasons. I mean, there's also a very important domestic reason in both cases. In the case of the United States, you have powerful political pressure on the Truman administration to support a Jewish state. Um, it probably is the case that Zionism has only become a majority sentiment in the American Jewish community very recently from the period of World War II and the Holocaust onwards. Before that, it was probably a minority sentiment among most, most of the American Jewish community. But certainly from World War II onwards, it, it develops enormous momentum. And obviously the Holocaust has something to do with this. But so does the fact that American Jews as a community are beginning to develop political power as had Irish Americans, as had Italian Americans, only very recently since the since the nineteenth century. Yeah, it's um, the whitening in in some sense of American exactly, Jewry, right? Exactly. And it's ironic that they invest in an ethno nationalist project at the moment of their becoming whitening right. in this domestic and context. I think you have to remember both the importance of the Holocaust in terms of shaking people's shaking up people in the United States. I mean, so many people in the American Jewish community had relatives who were, who were, who were destroyed, who were murdered during the Holocaust, A. And B, the continued racism in the United States and anti-Semitism in the United States directed against the Jewish community. I mean, you have to go back to the debates in the House and the Senate about loosening immigration laws and specifically about allowing displaced persons Jewish, mainly Jewish survivors of the Holocaust into the United States to understand the depths of completely unbridled, unfiltered anti-Semitism in American politics. So on the one hand, you have growing some political power, you know, you have, with these urban communities, whether of Italians or, 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 or Irish or Irish Americans, Italian Americans or Jewish Americans, they're developing political power, in, especially in the cities. At the same time, you have this powerful anti-Semitism against the background of the Holocaust. And I think that that is one of the factors that pushes people towards Jewish nationalism, towards Zionism. In any case, that's a domestic political factor in the United States. In the Soviet Union, there's, a, there's a, another peculiar factor, which is the Zionist movement had these important socialist elements to it. And I think Stalin and his colleagues deceived themselves into thinking, well, these guys may be allies, you know, in the, in the, in the, in this developing cold war, um, as against these reactionary monarchies that the British are supporting here, you have what purports to be a socialist or might, might become a socialist state. 
And so there were a variety of factors, as well, I think, as, as successful diplomacy by the Zionist movement. Um, it sent highly competent ambassadors or envoys. They weren't a, were a state, so they weren't ambassadors. Uh, to Russia, to the Soviet Union, to the United States. Um, and these people, you know, had support within the Jewish communities of the Soviet Union and within the Jewish community of the United States. And so you had a certain domestic element to it and a certain ideological element to it in the case of the Soviets. So that was that was what explains the fact that this, even though the Soviet Union and the United States are moving towards a collision and are already engaged in a rivalry, um, on this issue, they collaborate. You just need to unite against the British. Once again, history exactly. proves as long as you unite against the British, you could exactly. you could unite with each other. All right. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Professor. That was a great explanation and, and was really illuminating um, to me. A direct challenge to the United Nations and its powers of war prevention comes from Palestine. The definition of legal and illegal forces becomes daily more obscure. Haganah, the force first legally raised for the defense of Jewish settlements, appears to function hand in glove with Irgun Svileomi, the outlawed terrorist army. Full-scale training is underway in a score of camps throughout the country. So why don't we get into the early stages of the, the fighting, post-partition plan, yeah. uh, sort of the beginnings of the what is sometimes called the Civil War in Mandatory Palestine. It's really the beginning of the Arab-Israeli War, uh, the beginning of the Nakba. You talk in the book about this first stage and the sort of, uh, it seems apparent, the, the level of preparation that the Haganah, the, the Zionist paramilitary force, had put into this eventuality, preparing for this exact thing to, to happen, uh, versus sort of uh, maybe a, a level of disorganization on the Palestinian side. But can you talk a little bit about how the, right. the actual violence begins uh, and, you know, what what how the sides kind of draw up in the, this first right. stage of the conflict. I think there are at least two things to talk about here. One of them is the level of preparation of both sides, what you've already referred to, and the, the imbalance there. Uh, the other thing is some of the background on this. Why is the Haganah in particular so much better prepared? And why are the Palestinians so much more poorly prepared? And this takes, takes us back to the late 1930s and the Arab revolt. And the fact that one of the results of the Arab revolt is that most of the, many of the leaders on the Arab side are killed by the British, in many cases executed, in other cases killed in battle. 17%, um, as much as 17% of the adult male population, Arab adult male population of Palestine is killed, wounded, exiled, or imprisoned by the British during that revolt from 36 to 39. At the same time, the British are building up the Jewish settlement police. The British are building up special night squads of British and uh, Haganah uh, uh, soldiers to carry out attacks on Arab communities that are seen as hostile. The British are arming uh, auxiliaries in the Jewish community, as well as some Arabs, by the way, to help the British army and the British police fight this revolt. This was absolutely necessary because by late 1937, early 1938, when the British had huge numbers of troops tied down, preparing for possible war with Germany and couldn't spare uh, uh, enough troops for Palestine, the revolt took over much of the countryside in many of the cities. And the British were desperate. They needed local auxiliaries. And so uh, a man named Captain Lord Wingate and all of these are officers whom we later hear about during World War II, uh, General Wavell, General Montgomery, who were sent to Palestine as well as other experts brought in Sir Charles Teagard. I mean, I could name names. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be meaningful to your listeners. But these are the great British counterinsurgency experts. These are the, the British generals who cut their teeth killing colonials who revolted against the empire and are now engaged in suppressing this revolt. And they needed every all the manpower they could get. And so they enrolled by the tens of thousands. I mean, the, the Jewish settlement police grow up to 15,000, 20,000 men. Haganah absorbs all of this. Uh, all of this becomes a part. The Palmach is essentially trained by this man Wingate, the strike force of the Haganah. Uh, Moshe Dayan is trained by them. Yigal Alon is trained by them. Uh, Yitzhak Sadeh, who's the first chief of staff of the Israeli army, is trained in the special night squads. So the elite commando type units are trained by the British. 
the regular units are basically also trained by the, the British. And so you have several tens of thousands of people before World War II trained and armed by the British who end up in the Palmach or other units, uh, militia units uh, of, of the Zionist movement. During World War II, Churchill allows the creation of a Jewish brigade. And so you have an even larger participation by Jewish soldiers uh, in the war. And all of these people develop combat experience. So you're talking about tens and tens of thousands, maybe 30, 20, 40. It's not clear what the total numbers are, who have gone through military training uh, and, and are armed and organized, both by the British and then clandestinely by the Haganah, and who see combat experience, whether fighting in the counterinsurgency wars in Palestine against the Palestinians or fighting in World War, World War II in the Middle East or elsewhere. Moshe Dayan loses his eye uh, fighting the Vichy French uh, in 1941. And so these guys have combat experience by the thousands. So that's on the one side. So you have one side when the British needed them, armed and trained by them. Um, on the other side, the Palestinians are crushed by the British and they never really recover militarily or organizationally or politically from the defeat of the late 30s. Much of the leadership never is allowed to return. Some of them are only allowed to return in, the, in 45 or 46. My uncle was exiled from 1937 until I believe 1944 for the first two or three years in the Seychelles Islands and then from 39 to 44 in Beirut. He couldn't come back to Palestine. Others never are allowed to return. So your leadership is scattered in exile or allowed to return. Your best military cadres have often been killed or wounded. Um, your organization has been smashed by these counterinsurgency operations. And the Palestinians never really recover. Tens of thousands of weapons have been confiscated at a time when the Haganah is being armed by the British. I mean, the British are arming what they think are the Jewish settlement police, but of course that's the arms end up as part of the armory. Uh, what becomes the Israel Defense Force, the Israeli army? I always use the term, uh, I say the word Israel Defense Forces, I put the defense in scare quotes. Because one of the things the British train them is, is to go on the offensive. Ord Wingate's philosophy is an offensive philosophy, and he imbues the entire Israeli army with it. Um, if you read uh, Yigal Alon's book on the Israeli army, if you read the British, sorry, the Israeli military analyst, the late Israeli military analyst, Zeb Schiff's book on the Israeli army, they all credit, as does Ben-Gurion, uh, Wingate and British training for the ethos of the British, of the Israeli army. And that is an ethos of offensive, uh, aggressive, uh, often brutal counterinsurgency. They don't talk about the brutal part, but if you read the accounts of the people who are engaged, uh, who called, some of whom called Wingate a madman, uh, considered him completely out of control, it's clear that this is not just an offensive philosophy. This is a brutally offensive counterinsurgency. Philosophy. Just actually one question about that, because I'm interested in the military tactics. So this is this is an urban based strategy, uh, really an urban based counterinsurgency tactic. Where's Wingate? rural, mainly rural. Oh, they're so where do they learn it from? They're going. Pardon me. So where 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 is Wingate getting this? So this is clearly linked to British colonialism. I'm wondering if we could sort of trace the ideas. Is Wingate getting this from the quote unquote pacification of, of the Raj and, and bringing it to, to Palestine? Win, what, Wingate what the, Wingate had earlier served in the Sudan, where his okay. uncle had been a general, commander of the Egyptian army, governor general of the Sudan, later high commissioner of Egypt. His uncle, Sir Reginald Wingate, General Sir Reginald Wingate, was an Arabic speaker and one of these Arabists of the British, you know, colonial establishment. And so it's sort of handed down from uncle to nephew, uh, as it were. Uh, Wingate spends five years in the Sudan. He learns Arabic. He was, he's extremely gifted in languages. He learns Hebrew as soon as he comes to Palestine. He knows multiple languages. Uh, he's a passionate Zionist. He's very religious. He believes in Zionism as a religious imperative for a Christian. Um, but the, the counterinsurgency strategies are developed much before. They're developed in Ireland. They're developed in India. They're developed in the Boer War against the Boers. Uh, things like concentration camps, which later on become, in Vietnam, uh, you have a whole line. There's a, a, gen, a colonel by the name of Colwell who uh, distills the lessons of the Boer War. You then have other British experts, Teagart is one of them, who come in from India to Ireland and then goes back, goes to Palestine. You have a whole, uh, there, there's a whole crew uh, Wingate is only one of them. Right, Ireland is the empire. experience 
India is seminal in this experience. Uh, Caroline Elkin's book, A Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire, is absolutely brilliant in tracing the logic of what she calls the moral effect of violence. Uh, and he, she traces it from the late 19th century. And Churchill is, is, is central to this. Churchill fights on the Northwest frontier. Churchill fights in the Sudan. Churchill is a war correspondent during the Boer War. And he capitalizes on this both to become a, 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 a journalist who sells a ton of books. He writes three books between 1897 and 1900 about his experiences and also a politician. Uh, and his whole worldview is informed by his participation in these colonial wars, as is Lord Kitchener's, who's, who is High Commissioner in Egypt and then becomes Secretary of State for War during World War I. So this whole panoply of generals and colonels and counterinsurgency experts and so on and so forth have developed these philosophies which basically talk about the need to use violence on less civilized, savage peoples. Now this applied not only to darker peoples, brown and black people, it's applied to the Irish and the Boers, by the way. The British saw these two white Christian <laughs> peoples as beneath them, as less civilized, as savage, as needing to be taught a lesson through violence. And what this really is about is when you are facing huge numbers and overwhelming opposition from a society, you have two choices. You either go along with them and give them what they want, or you crush them. You use massive force. And so General Dyer, when he shoots down 400 Indians, Indians in Amritsar in 1919, says, well, you know, I had to do this because they were demonstrating. I mean, if we had allowed them to do this, they would have overwhelmed us. Now, of course, there was no danger to his troops with machine guns and so on. That's not the point. The point is the moral effect of, of overwhelming violence. And this is what Wingate is distilling and teaching. And it, it works. I mean, what is the Ireland experience. Why are the British in these castles? Because all the Irish are against them. You have to use either, you have to fortify yourself and you have to have overwhelming force. And those are lessons that any settler colonial project, you know, learns. And Wingate, in, a sense, in, in essence, imparts this to his mentees in, in, in Palestine in the, in the late 1930s. In any case, uh, what you have is two military forces that are completely unequal. And as soon as the, uh, the one is centralized, organized, uh, trained, in, in the main, largely trained, and relatively well armed, the other is not, as, as not centralized at all. You have different groups fighting in different places with very little coordination between them, desperately short of funds and desperately short of weapons and desperately short of ammunition. I mean, if you read the story of the leader in the Jerusalem area, Abdul Qadir al-Husseini, he's going back and forth to Damascus to beg an Arab League committee, could you please give us more ammunition? Could you please give us more money? Could you please give us more weapons? Uh, the Zionist movement has been organizing in the United States since World War I. You have people like Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Ben-Zvi organizing in 1918, 1919 in, in New York City, uh, planning for things like fundraising, planning for things like propaganda, planning organization, and so on and so forth, such that uh, the, the Zionist movement, of course, has manpower shortages, weapons shortages, but they're not usually short of funds. And they manage very, very well to supply themselves with the necessary weapons. This, this is true throughout the, the period of these two wars. And the, the second thing I want to talk about is everybody thinks of the war starting on May 15th with the declaration of the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, with, the, with the final withdrawal of British troops and with the coming into force of the partition resolution. In fact, the war starts in November 1947, as soon as the resolution is passed, because both sides understand huge tracts of Arab land with overwhelming Arab majorities are handed over to this Jewish state. The Jewish state would, under the partition plan, would have included over 40%, probably over 45% uh, of its population would have been Arab. And the overwhelming majority of that land that would have come into the control of the Jewish state was Arab-owned. And so a war begins to establish the control by this putative Jewish state over these vast tracts of territory that have been gifted to it by uh, the majority report, which is adopted as, as, UN, as UN General Assembly Resolution 181 in November of 1947. 
And so the war begins almost as soon as, as, as and it's a war, a, a war of lines of communication. It's a war for consolidation of uh, uh, areas controlled by the Zionist movement on, in the coastal strip, uh, in the area running down from Akka to the Jordan River Valley and up along the Jordan River Valley. And by uh, uh, March, uh, under various earlier plans that the, that the central command of the Haganah has, has produced, Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, um, that consolidation has taken place. And with Plan D, Plan Dalit, in March and April, they go into on the offensive on a much larger scale. They eventually decided, actually in, on the 10th of March, 1948, that the time has come before it would be too late to begin and execute the plan on the ground. Uh, they attack the major Arab cities, uh, major Arab parts of, of the cities of Haifa and Jaffa, both of them are taken in April and early May. Um, and these are the two, two of the three biggest Arab population agglomerations in Palestine. 60,000, 70,000 Arabs in Haifa, 67,000 Arabs in Jaffa are driven out of their homes. Jaffa, by the way, was supposed to be part of the Arab state under the partition. Professor, could you maybe just describe what, what that, take one of those cases and what does that look like actually? People surround the city. You know what I'm asking. How do, right. what, what, what is the, the practical, what does that practically look like? Well, I mean, if you look at the way in which uh, Jewish settlement, these colonies are established, uh, not quite from the very beginning, but certainly from the 1920s onwards, they're established with a strategic purpose in mind. And that purpose is to control the coastal strip, to control the, the, uh, the, 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 the valley that runs from Haifa down to Bissan, down to the Jordan River Valley. Uh, it's called the Emek. In, in Hebrew, it's called Majit min Amir in Arabic, um, the Vale of Jezreel in biblical terms, uh, as well as the Eastern Galilee Strip running up to uh, up and down uh, from the, the Lake Tiberias uh, up to the Lebanese border. Um, and that has already pretty much been achieved before partition through the, the planting of strategically located colonies along these lines of communication. And in the period of the first few months after partition, that that the hold over those regions is consolidated and then striking out from that it's like an end up the coast down the valley and then up the jordan river valley um striking out from that base um they proceed to take the coastal cities to take the town of tiberias to take the city of Bissan, to take other cities and towns as well as many of the villages in those regions such that by may 15 1948 uh, the Haganah has driven maybe four to 500,000 people out of their homes. How do they do that? Well, in the cities, they just bombard the living bejesus out of them. Mortars. They, 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 they manufacture a mortar called the Davidka. Not terribly accurate, but terrifying. And you just bombard civilian areas until the people leave. And people are, I mean, I've lived in, I, I lived in Lebanon during the first eight or nine years of the Civil War from the 1973 uh, right through 1983, so almost 10 years. And if you have a family, you're not gonna stay where, bomb, where shells are falling, where mortar bombs are falling, where they're sniping. And that's what happened. Uh, less well-organized militarily, cut off by the strategically planted colonies around uh, uh, Haifa and around Jaffa, where all of the communication routes are under control, pretty much, uh, of the attacking forces. Uh, these populations are driven out. Same thing happens in West Jerusalem. Same thing happens in other towns. And same thing happens in many villages, in especially April and the first half of May. Um, and this flight of population, several hundred thousand refugees arriving in Lebanon, arriving in Syria, arriving in Jordan, arriving in the parts of Palestine not yet occupied by these advancing uh, for, uh, militias, is what changes the calculus for the Arab countries. Uh, all of them had pretty much decided that they wouldn't be able to militarily, and it was politically unwise to challenge the partition resolution. They opposed it in the General Assembly, but they had no capability really to intervene. These armies were just just coming out of uh, uh, colonial rule. In fact, I would argue many of these Arab countries were still under indirect colonial rule. The Jordanian army is commanded by a British officer. All the brigades are commanded by British officers. Well, it's, its salary comes from the British. Its weapons come from the British. Its ammunition comes from the British. In what, in what, why, in what way is Jordan an independent country in 1948? Uh, the same thing is to a lesser extent true of Egypt and Iraq. 
uh, Syria and, and, and Lebanon, the French have just evacuated in 1946. They have tiny militaries um, with very limited capabilities. And so they had no ability to intervene, let alone intention. But the flood of refugees, the fact that the Jewish state is going to include not just the 55% that was, that was uh, allotted to it by the General Assembly, but as much as they can take, because Palestinian resistance is just crumbling by, by the middle of May. I mean, they're desperate pleas coming from the Palestinians, for God's sakes, help us, we can't stop this, um, pretty much forces the hand of the Arab governments. And then their rivalry with one another leads to the chaos that is the Arab involvement in the, in the, in the second phase of the war, which begins on May 15th. Just one question. Um, yeah. When people flee, um, when Palestinians flee their cities, are, are they bringing possessions? Do they have deeds of property? Um, what's the expectation? This is going to be a couple of months and then we'll, we'll return. I, I think every case is different. Uh, you know, I mean, when my, my grandfather refused to leave, he sent the family to safety. And I think he had, he had to be evacuated during the truce of um, June, July, if I'm not mistaken. One of his one of his bro one of his children, one of my uncles, managed to get somebody who had some kind of Red Cross connection to go in and take him out, and he refused to leave. So I don't know what he took with him. Um, uh, my guess is he lost his library. I, I seriously doubt that he was able to take his documents, his papers. Maybe he did. I don't really know. I know that in the family library in Jerusalem, we have precious few of my grandfather's papers. There's a ton of family papers and a lot of manuscripts. Maybe some of his manuscripts were already in Jerusalem. I really don't know. Um, and that's just my family. Every family, well, you'd have to ask them the same question. I'm pretty sure nobody could take their furniture, their rugs, their... Hassan Kanafani has a wonderful story about um, called Return to Haifa. Uh, it's, a, it's a short, it's a novella um, in which he talks about family going back after 67 to their old home in Haifa, and they find the same rugs and the same stuff. And I, I've heard many stories of that kind of thing. I'm sure other people managed to get stuff out. Uh, I do know that after these cities are taken, west, the, west, the Arab quarters of Western Jerusalem, Haifa and Jaffa, in the wake of the uh, advance of these Zionist militias and later of the Israeli army, you had organized uh, uh, collection groups picking up all the manuscripts and books they could find, which are now in a collection called AP, Abandoned Property, uh, in the National Library uh, in Jerusalem. Um, so a lot of stuff was obviously left behind. Uh, I don't know what va is valuables people were able to take. By and large, the thing that they were able to take is human capital. Uh, if they had money in banks, they lost it. I mean, I know of so many cases. Uh, Shireen Sayyid has written about this in a book of hers about um, about uh, uh, Arab capitalists, that they lost most, most of them lost their money. She tells the story of her own family, which had some capital. So that was often lost. The banks yeah, A huge transfer of wealth to the emergent Israeli exactly. state, I mean, like an in, enormous in, transfer of wealth. In yeah. fixed property, at least, absolutely. Not just land, but actual you know, furniture, homes, rugs, and so on. And there was extensive looting. And then there was organized seizure of property as well. In any case, um, the war then develops after May 15th uh, as a conflict between Arab regular armies, which are not coordinating with one another because of inter-Arab rivalries, and an Israeli army that is centralized and uh, uh, fighting on interior lines uh, against these uncoordinated uh, strikes by different Arab armies. It's important to recognize that the most, most effective of the Arab armies, which is the Jordanian Arab Legion, I, I, I think that should also be put in scare quotes because commanded by Sir John Baggett Glove, Glove Pasha, a British officer, and with all of its combat units commanded by British brigadiers, it's not an Arab legion. It's a British officered legion of Arabs fighting for basically Britain <laughs> as much as they're fighting for the Hashemites. This is the most effective military force. They had combat experience in World War II, just like the Jewish Brigade and just like many of the Haganah fighters. Uh, so they were an extremely effective force. However, they and the Iraqi army, which sent some, a couple of brigades to Palestine and fought under Jordanian command, were restricted by agreements that King Abdullah had made with the Jewish agency and with the British to not cross the partition lines. In other words, the British had told him, under no circumstances will we, Great Britain, allow British officered Arab legion units 
to enter into the territory allocated to the Jewish state under partition. This was a self-denying ordinance imposed on the Jordanians and the Iraqis by the British, and they never did. All of the fighting involving the Jordanian and in Iraqi forces, which are by far the most effective military force on the Arab side in Palestine, took place within the area allocated to the Arab state. It's really important to realize this because the idea they invaded Israel is actually true of the Egyptian army and to a very tiny extent of the Syrian army, but certainly not of the most effective military force on the Arab side, which is the Jordanian and, and Iraqi armies. So, Professor, I think um, what we'll do if we can convince you to come back again, uh, we, we'll talk about the kind of aftermath of the, the 1948 war and move mm-hmm. from there into uh, the Suez crisis as we sort of build up to, to the mm-hmm. 1967 war. But I'd like to end uh, this interview with uh, maybe a, a, a brief discussion of the historiography of, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess Plan Dalit in, the, in a microcosm, but really the Nakba as right. a whole. Uh, right. Because the traditional, I mean, I, you know, as you know, the traditional historiography is that, uh, you know, Plan Dalit was a defensive action. The Israelis were trying to simply secure the borders of the future Israeli states. That's that, that statement is actually true. They were trying to secure the borders by well, taking Arab right. homes and, and, <laughs> occupied, and inhabited territory, right? And annexing so, it too, including it in this new Jewish state. That's right. So the, technically the, accurate. <laughs> the sort of positive spin on that, I guess, if you want to put it that way, I don't know, is that they were trying to secure the partition borders. But in right. fact, uh, you know, we can talk. You, you can talk about this. They they, they went well beyond that. Uh, right. You know, the story of the Nakba traditionally has been, uh, you know, a lot of this was voluntary. It was Palestinians who didn't yeah, want to yeah. live under an Israeli state or didn't want to live in the yeah. the Jewish state of Israel, so they they left of their own uh, volition. More recent scholarship has, uh, you know, really hammered that position. I think. Uh, to a large extent, it's it's you know ca- categorized, and including your book, categorizes Plan Dalit as as you know really ethnic cleansing, uh, right. the Nakba as a as a you know intentional campaign to depopulate uh, right. these regions that the Israelis wanted to be part of the Israeli state. Uh, right. th- they wanted to seize as much territory as possible beyond the the borders of of the mandate or beyond the borders of the partition, what the partition envisioned uh, for the future Israeli state. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that debate and and how it's kind of changed over time right, and, and that right. that could be uh, where we sort well, of it's a debate this, it's this a line. debate that's that's um was entirely dominated by a, a a whole set of falsehoods their leaders told them to leave they didn't want to leave on they didn't want to live under a, 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 an israeli state, jewish state um they had no attachment to the land it completely ignores the actual history and it it, it importantly ignores the victims uh testimony which it, I mean, there were 750,000 refugees. If anybody had bothered to ask them, why did you leave? We left because we were terrified. We left because they killed 10 boys in the village square. We left because they bombarded us until we couldn't you know, stay where we were. There was no, and, and research was done as early as the 1950s, among other things, by my cousin Walid Khaldi, uh, by Erskine Childers, an Irish writer, which showed that there was no Arab appeal for people to leave. On the contrary, Arab countries were saying, for God's sake, stay. They were being flooded with refugees. The last thing these recently independent states needed was hundreds of thousands of indigent refugees filling the streets of Amman, Damascus, and Beirut. Uh, the, the idea is, is so idiotic that anybody who knows anything about the actual history wonders how did people believe this absolute nonsense. They believed it because it was beautiful sugar coating for what people wanted to believe, which is the immaculate conception of the state of Israel, uh, uh, free of original sin, uh, created because the stupid Arabs just left. Um, I mean, if you if you think carefully and you look carefully at what Zionist leaders said, they said they wanted to create a Jewish state. Uh, uh, that was Herzl. Uh, Jabotinsky said, we're going to transform the land of Palestine into the land of Israel. How do you do that in a country with a two-thirds Arab majority, except by removing the Arabs? And Herzl talks about it in one way. Uh, uh, others talk about it in another. They talk about it sotto voce. They don't broadcast it. Weizmann goes before commissions and lies through his teeth, saying, no, we want to live in peace with these people. Uh, our intentions are benign. We don't mean to harm them. Herzl says this every, every sign, except Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky is honest. No, they'll fight and we're going to fight them. And the British have to protect us until we're ready to do it on our own. And at that point, we win 
we force them to accept our terms, and then we give them equal, whoever's left equal rights. But there is no pretense in the internal discussions that this is going to be, remain a major, majority Arab country. It would not be a Jewish state otherwise. You had to remove the population to create a Jewish state in an overwhelmingly Arab country. Anybody who denies that is denying demography. And, this, and, and, and the obsession of both sides with demography explains it as, as well as anything else. The historiography changes in the 1980s with the opening of the Israel State Archives. What anybody who experienced this could have told you, if anybody had asked them, any one of the 750,000 people actually forced to leave, was now legible in the Israeli archives, where it was perfectly clear that people were driven out by force. Uh, Benny Morris, uh, Ilan Pape, a whole group of Israeli historians who come to be known as the new historians, though they, they, they range from people like Abi Shleim and, and Pape and, and, and Tom Segev, who are, I think, much more forthright in explaining what's happening than, than is Morris. But even Morris, who becomes very right-wing uh, as time goes on, even Morris makes it clear that murder and rape and, and uh, expulsion of populations was central to this, to this project. Uh, he denies a forethought. He says, no, no, this wasn't planned. It just happened in the heat of battle, which if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. But in any case, even Morris's uh, uh, very careful researches show uh, the extent of the violence that was necessary to drive these people out. So the historiography now is pretty much settled. Uh, that myth lives on in the minds of people who want to believe that Israel is not capable of, of, of anything but good. Um, but anyone who knows anything about the historical record, anybody who's read what Israeli, Western, and, and Arab historians have written in the last 30, 40 years, really since the late 80s until now, uh, knows that that's a complete falsehood. There's no truth to it whatsoever. Uh, so I think that's a good place to to end this episode. And, and as I say, we, we would love to have you back to continue this discussion through the 1950s and we'll uh, you know move on toward the the 1967 war for now at least though uh rashid Khalidi, edward saeed professor of modern arab studies and author of the hundred years war on palestine uh, thank you once again for your time and for uh, taking us through this very important story well thanks again for having me